Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So this weekend, if you've been around Summit, you know that uh, normally we do series, and we might do a, a four or six, and sometimes we've done 18-week series, depending on what the topic is and the passage of Scripture and whatever it might be. Um, and we knew a while back that we would have a single week this week, um, that we weren't, weren't going to start a new series yet. And, um, and really, I had been praying about it. God, what do you want me to, to share? And uh, there was an idea that we've had for a sermon series for a couple of years that kept getting squeezed out as we would look at, um, at our sermon planning calendar for the year and start laying those out. There, there was this idea that I had that I really liked uh, that just kept getting on the, left on the cutting room floor every year. And this year was no different. <clears throat> and so we decided, hey, I, I want to preach this. And it's not going to be a series. It's going to be a one-weeker. But, um, but I, I really, this is something that's been on my heart for a while. And I, I pray that it's helpful for you. Um, and really, there's this idea in Scripture that there are giants and that there are giant killers. And my prayer is and has been that we would be a church of giant killers. Uh, th- this problem goes back to the book of Numbers when the nation of Israel was, um, was leaving captivity in Egypt. They were... Um, they moved through the wilderness. They were going into the promised land. They sent spies into the promised land to check it out. And, uh, and this is what they said. This is in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. It says, this was the re- their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak, the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. They say, it looks great, but there is a high cost because there are giants there. In fact, it says a little bit later, um, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So in their own estimate, when they compared themselves to these giants, they were like bugs is what they said. But listen to what Caleb says in verse 30. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as, he, as they stood before Moses. He said, let's go at once to take the land. We can certainly conquer it. I love Caleb's enthusiasm. I love how uh, he doesn't mind being the dissenting voice to say, oh, when everybody else says let's not go because it's too dangerous, Caleb's the one going, yeah, let's go. Uh, Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies who came back and gave a favorable report. The rest of them said no, and as a result, they were forced to wander the wilderness. And the only two spies that were able to enter the promised land when that time was done was Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb was willing to fight, and I don't think it was because he was confident in his own abilities as a warrior. I believe he was confident in who God was. A few weeks ago, uh, Kim spoke um, during our Level Up series, and she shared this word on uh, the emboss, that there's a giant. And she talked a lot about David and Goliath during that uh, message, and I would refer you back to that. We're not going to take time to, to, to rehash some of that. It was a great message, and I would encourage you to check it out. But, but giants have been a problem from, from early on all the way into 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 17, this is where David, he, he goes down to the Valley of Allah where the Philistines and the, 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 the Israelites are facing off against each other. And he's just going to check it out. And all of a sudden, through a series of circumstances, he's the one on the battlefield fighting the giant. And even if you're not part of church, even if you are unfamiliar with Scripture, you probably know that David won the battle that day. Then from that day forward, he was known as a giant killer. And this is part of our culture today that people who don't go to church or don't know scripture still know that David beat Goliath. He was known as a giant killer. That was his identity. It was his reputation. People knew that. Um, And it's interesting because 
David did this. He was anointed to be the king, but then his life got sidetracked, and he ends up at this place called Adullam when he was on the run for his life from King Saul. And this is where we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2. It says, so David left Gath. He was a fugitive, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble and in debt and were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. Now, we've talked about this passage in depth. I love this, this place that David was, uh, this, this season of his life. I think God really did some incredible things in and through him. But one of the really incredible things he did is he sends, sends this, this band of, of, of misfits, of ne'er-do-wells, of uh, rejects, if you want to call them that, to, to the cave to be with him. And he becomes their captain. He becomes their leader. And I can imagine David was thinking, God, you, you anointed me to be the king of Israel someday, but now I'm in this cave hiding, and I've got these losers with me. You sent me these people, God. What are you doing? I thought I was made for more than this, but that's not the way he approached it at all. In fact, what we see is this group of losers, if you want to say it that way, ended up being some of the most important figures in his life. Uh, what we see in 2 Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23, it records David's final words. And this is important. Um, I, if you've ever lost someone close to you, you want to know, like, what did they say before they passed? Because it feels like there should be some significance there. And so 2 Samuel 23 records David's final words, the final words he spoke. And then after that, it records his compatriots, the people that served with him, the people that served under him. These were his generals. These were his leaders. These were his confidants. And all these men were men who came to him when he was in Adullam. They were men who were unhappy and in debt and in trouble. And he turned them into his mighty men is what they ended up being called. There were a couple of groups. There were the three is what they were called. And the three were the men of the most renown, the men who had done significant deeds in battle. Uh, and they, they were famous. Um, then you had the 30. And the 30 were not as famous as the three, but, uh, but they were pretty significant as well. And these were generals. These were leaders in the military, in the army. These were uh, the royal guard for David, his, his secret service. These were important people in his life. And so 2 Samuel 23 lays out who these men are. And it's all people who came to him in Adullam, which is interesting to me. But in 2 Samuel 21, it kind of lays out the bedrock of what I want to share with you today. 2 Samuel 21, verse 15 it says this, and this is toward the end of David's life. It says, once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel, and when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. Ishbe Benab was a descendant of the giants. He was actually a son of Goliath who David killed. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He had cornered David and was about to kill him, but Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. Then David's men declared, you are not going about to battle with us again. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? This is the moment when they're like, Dad, we're taking away your keys. You can't drive anymore, right? <laughs> this is what they're saying to David. You are not going to battle with us again, buddy. You are too important. So what had happened is the son of Goliath, you think they had an axe to grind? His kids, his family had an axe to grind with David? The son of Goliath has an older David. He is not as strong. He's maybe not as, as agile as he once was. He's got him cornered. And Abishai, son of Zariah, Abishai was David's nephew. And what we see in in 2 Samuel 23 is Abishai was the leader of the 30, and Abishai was renowned because he killed 300 men with a spear in one battle. He shows up and he kills this giant. He slays him. He saves the day. He, he rescues David, saves his life. Then it goes on in verse 18. It says, after this, there was another battle against the Philistines at Gob. They, as they fought, Sebekai uh, from Husha killed Saph, another descendant of the giants. This was another son of Goliath. His name was Saph. He was killed by Sebekai. Sebekai was the general of the 8th Division of David's army. 
2 Samuel 21, 19 goes on to say, during another battle at Gob, uh, Elanan, son of Jair, from Bethlehem, killed the brother of Goliath of Gath. The handle of his spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. So Goliath had a brother. And what we see in 1 Chronicles 20 is his, his name was Lamai, L-A-H-M-I. So do you sense a theme here? That all of Goliath's family is, is out to kill the Israelites and specifically David? And what we see is, is Elanan stepped up and killed Lamai. There's some evidence that this was probably another battle like David's was, the one-on-one uh, representing your army, and he slew the giant. Verse 20 goes on to say, in another battle with the Philistines at Gath, they encountered a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet, 24 in all. I love the fact that scripture points that out. If you're bad at math, it's 24, six and six, you're like, yeah, it is 24. It's got it there for you. 24 in all, who was also a descendant of the giants. This was another son of Goliath, according to uh, historic records. But when he defied and taunted Israel, he was killed by Jonathan, the son of David's brother, Shemaiah. So this was another nephew of David who killed a giant. And then verse 22 says, These four Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gath, but David and his warriors killed them. You know what's interesting is David didn't kill these four giants, but he gets credit for it. It says David and his warriors killed them. He he killed Goliath. Goliath wasn't one of these four. But I think this points out something really important for us, that, that we live in a society where we are the heroes of the story where we are the protagonist. And I want you to know something. We are not the protagonist. One of the things Kim talked about a few weeks ago was the fact that we don't slay giants. God slays giants. He just happens to use people like you and me. God used David to slay Goliath. David wasn't the hero. God was the hero. And what we see here is this idea that, that, that we think we're the protagonist. We're going to slay giants. And I want to help you with this. We don't slay giants. God slays giants through us. But but let me take this a step further. Not only are we not the hero, God wants us to raise up people who he can use to slay giants as well. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's inviting us into. See, it's not just our responsibility to fight giants. It's our responsibility to raise up people who will fight giants. That's what I mean divert this a little bit. Um, This is a leadership principle. This is a principle in business, in um, spiritual relationships, in church, that we should be raising people up and developing people. Um, But as I was praying about this, I really felt prompted to go a specific direction. And so I want to read a passage of scripture to you. This is in Psalm chapter 127, verse 3. It says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. Now, this first verse here, children are a gift from the Lord. I want to be honest with you. During quarantine in 2020, that didn't feel like that was the case, did it? <laughs> when, when, when parents were trying to do school online with their kids. And at that point, it was like, you know what? I don't know if, if children are a gift from God or if, if in-person school is a gift from God. But it didn't feel like that. But this is where I want to frame this. Our children are a gift from God. They, they are a gift that we get but that aren't for us. And it goes on to say, children are like arrows in a warrior's hand. And this is important because uh, a, a warrior with a bow and arrow was dangerous and, and probably more dangerous than most other warriors on the battlefield because they had an advantage. And if you were going to be face-to-face, nose-to-nose with your enemy, or you could stand at a safe distance picking them off with a bow and arrow, it would be prefer- uh, preferable for you to stand at a distance. And most warriors understood the value of a bow and arrow. And then it goes on to say, uh, and their arrow, their, their quiver is full, right? And so it's this idea that, that spiritually our kids are a gift, but we have to understand that our kids are a gift to us, but our, our kids are a gift to our world as well. 
because our kids have spiritual capacity to push back against the enemy. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. But really, when we talk about developing giant killers today, what I'm, I really want to have this focus in on is how do we develop our kids? And some of you are like, great, my kids are out of the house. I get a pass. Or some of you are thinking, I'm single. I don't have kids. Uh, hey, we're, we just got married. We're dating. We don't have kids. Uh, I can turn off my brain. Nope. Because you, if you don't have kids, um, you still have people you're influencing spiritually. I believe that God wants you to have spiritual sons and daughters, whether you have physical sons and daughters or not. I, I told uh, some folks the other day, I've got spiritual sons and daughters that are older than I am, that they consider me their spiritual father, that I get to pour into them, that I get to encourage them, that I get to challenge them. And this message is for anyone who influences others, anyone who leads others. So there's three things. If you want to develop giant killers, the first thing is you got to show them. This is not profound in and of itself, so let me explain it to you. In 1 Samuel 17, David showed people how to slay a giant. He said, this is how it is done. This is what you do. This is the means by which you slay a giant. Now, the interesting thing is the people we see who killed the giants, his nephews, um, Elenin and Sebekai, all of them had either been present when David killed Goliath, or they knew people who were present when David killed Goliath. Probably. So, so they knew the story well. They had heard it. They had heard it recounted. Maybe they had witnessed it. And because of that, they were very well acquainted with his story. They knew exactly what he had done. It was part of legend. It was part of lore. And because he showed them, it inspired them that maybe they could fight giants too. And I'm telling you, one of the most important things we can do as parents is display for our kids how to kill giants. Show them how to face something with bold faith and confidence in who God is. Because remember, we don't kill the giants, God does. So it comes back to our affection for Christ, our affection for the things of God, and saying, God, I want what you want. God, I know I can't defeat this opposition in my life, but I know you can. And letting our kids witness that and see that is really important. Now, here's the problem. The problem is too many times we're showing our kids the wrong things. We're displaying the wrong things to our kids. We're showing them how we can get ourselves out of problems. We're showing them um, what we value and what we love, and it's not the things we should be displaying to them. Some of you, uh, oh gosh, this is, I hate making statements like that, but, but, but for some of us, our kids have never seen us read the Bible before. Some of us, our kids uh, have never seen us pray. For some of us, maybe your kids have never seen you treat your spouse with honor. So we're showing them, but we're not showing them the right things. So my question is, what, what have your kids seen you doing? What are you showing them? See, I think too many times we're fighting battles, but we're fighting the wrong battles. There was a, a preacher and an author and uh, just a, a spiritual giant named Leonard Ravenhill who said this. He said, many of us are hunting mice while lions devour the land. We're fighting the wrong battles. And... And I believe our kids are seeing that. See, what we're doing is we're teaching our kids how to go to church sometimes. We're teaching our kids um, how, to, how to schedule in some, some time with God if we don't have other stuff going on. And this isn't about church attendance. It's about what is going on in our lives. What are we displaying to them? What are we showing them? And the reality is many parents feel at a loss. I talk to parents all the time that are like, Pastor, I can't. I can't teach my kids. I can't lead my kids. I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't have the slightest idea how to do that. And so what happens is they, they leave it to the pros, to the experts, right? So let me help you. If you feel inadequate to be a giant killer and to show that to your kids, let me help you with a couple things. Number one, 
Um, find a giant killer and serve them. And what I mean by that is uh, the three who were da- part of David's mighty men, before they were the three, they were in Adullam with David, and they were under siege by the Philistines, and David's hometown was Bethlehem, and David, it, just in a moment of exhaustion, says, oh, man, there was this, there was this w- well by the gate in Bethlehem, and oh, man, the, the water from that well. Oh, I wish I had a drink from that well. And it was so much more than just the refreshment, the I need a drink of water. It was something about that specific well, the taste, the flavor of the water. It was just unique, and I believe it was nostalgic for him. It reminded him of growing up. It reminded him of being home. It reminded him of the feelings he had that were associated with that that water. And he didn't ask anybody to go get him water, but the three, they left. And they went to Bethlehem and they fought through enemy lines and they drew from the well and they brought back water for David because they said, we want to serve you. We want to honor you. And he wasn't the king. He was just a guy leading a bunch of losers in a cave at that point. But they knew he had killed the giant. And they said, I just want to be around you. I want to serve you. We see your character. We see who you are. We want to be around you. And so they said, let us serve you. And I'm telling you, if you want to learn how to kill giants, you're going to find somebody who knows how to kill giants, and you're just going to get with them. You're going to serve them. You're going to say, hey, can we get coffee sometime? Hey, can I buy you lunch sometime? I just want to learn how you do it. If you see people who parent kids well successfully, the best thing you can do if you want to be a good parent is to say, hey, show me what you're doing. Can I just be around you? Can me and my wife get dinner with you guys sometime? Spend time with giant killers. Serve them. The second thing is get in community with giant killers because this is what happens. You have this group of people who were following David and all of a sudden people in their group started killing giants and it inspired them. It's like, oh my God, did you see what Abishai did? Abishai, right? By the way, Abishai is a strong name for a child if you're considering names. Um, much, much better than Ishbi Banab, by the way. But when your peers... Start killing giants, it inspires you. It challenges you. When one member of your team is succeeding, it helps the rest of the team succeed. And it's important for us to be in community with people who know how to kill giants, know how to raise kids well. So what do we do? Well, we show them. And what we show them is we show them how to love Christ really well. That's really what we're doing. We, we show them how to have a deep affection for Jesus. That's what we model. The second thing is we lead them. Um, I love the fact that David didn't wait till he was in the throne room. See, so many of us, we go, I'm, I'm underqualified to teach my kids about Scripture, the Word. I can't do it. Um, and David didn't wait till he was the king to lead. He led the group of men he had where they were. He didn't say, well, I need a little more education. I need a little more experience. He knew what he was called to, and he said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start where I am right now. And this is what I would tell you. If you're a parent and you're struggling to know how to lead your kids, whether they are children or adults, how do I lead them in the ways of the Lord? Um, Just start where you are with who you have. Um, David, he didn't wait for everything to, to come into alignment he said, okay, I'm going to lead right now where we are uh, in this cave. I'm going to lead the, the, the band of rejects that came my way. Lead them. One of the problems is I think parents don't understand that they're called to be parents many times. I think many times parents prefer to be a peer or a buddy or a best friend. And when I was a youth pastor years ago, very first youth ministry I was ever at, I made a statement to the kids in the youth group, and my heart was right, but the words were wrong. Have you ever had that moment before? And I said, guys, I want you to know something. I'm not here to be your best friend. I'm here to be your youth pastor. I want to help you and develop you and grow you. And, and what they heard is, I'm rejecting you. I don't want to be around you. Like, I don't want to be friends with you. Like that kind of, That's what they heard. And so what I had to do is revise that and say, I'm going to be your very best friend. I'm going to be the best friend you ever had. 
Because a, a real best friend, okay, a buddy is friends with you because of how it benefits them for the most part. Well, we play golf together, or well, we get together, or well, we hang out, you know, after games, or whatever it is. This is our activity we do together, and it benefits me, so that's what we do. And a buddy might be honest, but they're never going to be 100% honest, because they don't want to violate or, or lose the benefit of that relationship. But a best friend is different. A real best friend, um, I heard it say, said one time, a best friend is someone who will stab you in the front. And a best friend is going to speak truth to you. Uh, let me say it this way. This is a little confusing, so I might have to say it a couple times. A best friend will say, I love you more than I love being loved by you. I love you more than I love being loved by you. So I, I love you enough that I'm going to speak truth to you, that I'm going to be honest with you, even if you stop loving me. That's how much I love you. And this is the way parents need to love their kids. They need to love their kids because they love their kids more than they love being loved by their kids. I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm going to be honest with you. And, and not in a hateful, hurtful way. But they need to understand who they are and what their role is. That our role is to lead our kids. I've told you before, um, we've got um, an animal infestation in our house. And it started about seven years ago when we got the dog. But Lulu has become part of our family, and not long after we got Lulu, she's a seven-pound dog. She is a Maltese-Sean, so that means she's um, like a third Maltese, a third Bichon, and a third demon is what she is. So, and it is very clear in our house that I am the alpha, so I can, I can call Lulu or speak harshly to her, and she will duck her head, tuck her tail, and she will generally do what I tell her to do. So about two weeks after we got Lulu, um, she was doing typical puppy things in our house. Can I leave it at that? And we didn't like that. We didn't like the cleanup. And so I took her to a trainer. This was a trainer we knew. And I dropped her off. And the trainer was like, hey, it'd be better if you could stick around. And I was like, oh, I'm really busy. And he was like, okay. So I dropped Lulu off at the trainer. And after about three sessions, the trainer finally said, this is not going to work. I said, how come? And he said this. He said, if you won't be more involved, the training's not going to work because the training is more about you than Lulu. See, Lulu's, Lulu's behavior was based on what I would allow. <laughs> this is going to sound really lazy or horrible, but I'm going to, we're just being honest. It's just us. Nobody else is around. It's just you and me. Um, I told Kim the other day, I said, babe, we really need to think about having another child because Emma's going to be out of the house before long, and we're really going to need somebody to take the dog out when she's gone. So this is something for us to consider, maybe. And some of you are like, I can't believe you'd say that. That's okay. Um, but I hate messing with a dog like that. I just hate it. But what the trainer was saying is, uh, you're the problem, not the dog. What you are allowing is what the dog is doing. Does that make sense? And I realized what I wanted is I wanted to take the dog and give it to the trainer and go, fix my dog. As quickly as possible with as le little work from me as possible. And what he said is, that's not possible. You have to be actively involved for your dog to be trained. Does anybody see where I'm going with this? So many people have children, and they go, Pastor Christina, fix my kid. Summit Youth, fix my kid. You've got 90 minutes on a weekend. You've got 90 minutes on a, on a Wednesday night. Do your best to fix my child. It's like, no, no, no. You can't just drop your kid off, Right? You've got to be actively involved in the process. And this is what I'm telling you. You have to lead your kids well. You have to model for them what it looks like to love Jesus. You've got to show them how to do it. You've got to show them what it means to slay giants. In Hebrews chapter 13, this is a verse we talk about in Growth Track. But in Hebrews 13 verse 7, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
So this is talking for, for full disclosure, this is talking about spiritual authority, uh, specifically in churches, okay? But I believe that when we get to heaven, there's going to be two judgments, one for unbelievers and one for believers. And I be- believers are going to be judged based on what they were given and what they did with what they were given. And part of what we're given is kids. Remember what we said, children are a gift from God. So I want you to understand this. I'm going to be held responsible someday for this congregation, for the people who are members of Summit Church. How did I steward them? How did I lead them? How did I speak into them? But I believe that parents are going to stand in judgment before God someday about how they led their children. What did you do with the gift of the kids that I put in your life? And I want you to understand this. This is not condemnation at all. Because maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, I blew it. My kids are grown and I've already messed up. It's not too late. Maybe there's condemnation because your kids have made choices in their lives that aren't honoring to God. And you go, oh my gosh, that was my fault. It wasn't. We'll come to that in a minute. I want to read a couple of verses from Proverbs to you. The first is this, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. This is from the English Standard Version. It says this. I just like the way it was, it was worded in the English Standard Version. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. This is one my dad understood well. The rod of discipline. And we're not going to wade into corporal punishment and things like that today because I know some of you could get sideways on that. I was spanked as a child, and I did okay. Um, but what it says is folly is bound up in the heart of a child. This word folly here, it actually means foolishness. This is the way it's normally translated. It's foolishness. There's foolishness in the heart of kids. Does anybody remember when you were a kid? Some of you, it's way too long ago. You do not. I remember, and I remember I was an idiot. Were there any other idiots I don't know if I've fully grown out of it, but I was an idiot. I was stupid. I did idiotic things. Not even things that were evil, just things that were like, why would you even do that? It was like, mm. like one of those things, right? Because kids can be foolish. It's bound up in our hearts. And it says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, the word discipline here is a Hebrew word. It's yasar. And the word yasar means to chasten, uh, discipline, instruct, admonish. And chasten is a word we don't use much. Like, you don't say chasten very often in your normal everyday life probably. So let me help you. Chasten means to restrain or to moderate. So what it's saying is, hey, um, there's foolishness in the heart of our kids. Even older kids, even college-age kids, they can be foolish. And the way we combat that is the rod of discipline, the rod of restraint. This is where kids aren't restrained naturally. naturally. Do you know that? If you've got toddlers, you understand. Kids are not naturally restrained. They're not like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't eat that, Mom. I don't know if that's good for my diet if I should eat that, so... I will hold off on the chocolate. They're like, chocolate, right? It's all over their face. They're passed out in a pile of chocolate, chocolate coma. Why? Because they have no restraint. You have to lock up the candy, right? Because they have no restraint. And that's where a parent is responsible for bringing restraint to their kids' lives, for for. Telling them, hey, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. This is why you can't consume all you want. This is why we don't do certain things or go certain places or involve ourselves in certain activities. And it's parents' responsibility to bring discipline to their kids. Proverbs 29, 17 says this, Discipline your children and they will give you peace of mind and will make your heart glad. Um, Abby, my oldest, is in college, and uh, she's going to be home this week, by the way. I'm excited about that. But I've, she's never told me, um, I wish you weren't as hard on me as you were in high school or in junior high. But there's been several times she said, thanks for not letting me date as early as I wanted to. And I'm so glad that I didn't. 
I'm so glad that every time she thought some boy was cute, I wasn't like, that's fine, it's innocent. I, I was hard. I, I, I restrained her because she needed it. And I slept better at night. I was at peace. Now, does that mean she was perfect? No. No. She still did things. She still had foolishness bound up in her heart. But I'm telling you, I was at peace because I knew that I'm disciplining my kids the way I believe I'm supposed to. In those moments that my daughter does the same thing your kids do, well, why can't I? Everybody is, right? I don't care about everybody. And this is what I would tell them. I'm, I'm not going to stand in judgment for their kids someday. I'm going to stand in judgment for you someday. So I don't care if they are restrained. You will be restrained. You are being disciplined. And it's not fun in the moment, but it's worth it in the long run because it gives peace of mind. Discipline is a gift to your kids, but it's a gift to you as well because it gives you peace of mind. It makes your heart glad. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a verse that I read during um, baby dedications. I love it. It's after the law was given to Israel. Uh, the, the, they had received the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, it says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is alone, or the Lord alone. He, there is no other Lord is what he's saying. You must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to those, those commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. And this is what I would tell you. Um, your kids should be saturated in the Word of God. And you might go, Mel, I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. Just go through the Word of God with them. Learn together. Write it on the doorposts is what it's saying. If, it was, if this was written today, they would say, um, print up something, buy something off of Etsy and put it on the refrigerator, right? Put it on their mirror when they're getting ready in the morning. Saturate them in the word of God. Help them see who God is, how good and kind and beautiful our Lord really is. Repeat it to them again and again. They should be sick of it. But what it's saying is, parents, it's our responsibility. Um, just as a, a plug, there is a, an app that I would encourage you. It's called the Parent Q. And if you've got kids in our kids' ministry, this is something we use. And I would encourage you, any place you download apps, search for Parent Q. If you're a parent or a grandparent with kids in our kids' ministry, uh, this is awesome because you can sign your kids up. You can register your kids in the app. It'll, it'll give you uh, updates on devotions you can do with your kids. It'll give you talking points, hey, like, hey, while you're getting ready for breakfast or getting ready for school or during dinner time, here's something you could talk with your kids about. And it all comes back to what we do in our kids' ministry. So it reinforces what we're doing on the weekend with your kids throughout the week. And I would encourage you, download it. It's the Parent Q app, anywhere you download an app. And you'll search for the Summit Church, is our church, and you'll get connected with it. I did say it's our church, just in case you didn't know what our church was called. The final thing is this, let them. So we show them, we lead them, and then finally we let them. You, you've got to let them fight some battles. In 1 Samuel 17, 37, David's making a case on why he should fight Goliath to King Saul. And he said, the Lord rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear, and he will rescue me from the Philistine. Now, I love this because he says, God will rescue me. But when I'm reading this with my parent lens on, I'm like, your, your dad lets you fight a lion and a bear? I'm glad CPS doesn't know about this. Jesse would be in deep trouble, right? Um, but this is what he did in, in his efforts to protect his, his flock. He killed lions and bears. And that was preparation to fight the giant. See, his dad had to allow him to be in a risky situation to fight the lions and the bears. But he was willing to do that because I think Jesse understood he's going to face some challenges and if he can't face the lion and the bear, he's not going to be able to face the bigger challenges that come his way. One of the things that I think is interesting is David, as a young man, recognized that it was, the, it was God who rescued him. And the Lord who rescued me will rescue me from this Philistine, is what he says. 
And one of the reasons I think kids don't understand that the Lord will rescue them is because too many times parents don't let the Lord rescue them. Parents rescue them. Oh, I've got to fix this. Oh, this, there's a problem here. I've got to, and if you're a school teacher, you understand this, right? I talk to teachers. There's a bunch of teachers in our church. I talk to teachers all the time that children are the problem sometimes, but a lot of times it's the parent of the children. Well, why did my kid get this grade? Well, they're dumb. <laughs> they should have studied more. Well, it's just not fair. And you need to, and this is, and it's your problem. It's not, and this is what parents do a lot of times. Parents are trying to solve problems that, that they need to let God solve for their kids. I think one of the things, reason this happens is it comes pretty naturally because I think many times mom and dad have never allowed God to solve a problem for them. And the thing that's interesting to me is David didn't fight every giant. Did you notice that? David fought a giant. He fought the giant that was assigned to him. And then he developed people to fight giants. But we want to fight every battle for our kids. We want to rescue them. We want to save them. And, and this is the thing, our responsibility. We're doing our kids a disservice if we're fighting every fight for them. We've got to raise up kids, raise up spiritual sons and daughters who know how to fight. Because someday mom and dad won't be there to fight the battle for them. And what are they going to do? Thank God that David raised up an Abishai. And when David was in trouble, Abishai could rescue him. Abishai didn't have to go, David, I don't know what to do. This is your fight. You fight the giants. He was ready. There's a term in psychology called snowplow parenting. And it's this idea that parents that are snowplows remove every obstacle in front of their children. And this sounds like it could be a good thing, but it's really not because they will face obstacles. They will face challenges. And the question is, are they ready for the challenges in front of them. I guess one of the questions I'm asking is, do we want to make our kids safe or strong? And you can make a case. We could do both. They could be safe and strong. But I fear too many of us um, make them safe at the expense of making them strong. We never want them to face any challenges. And as a result, they're safe, but they're weak. They're safe, but they're defenseless. Did you know the same Jesus that I preach in here, the same Holy Spirit who empowers in here is the same Jesus and Holy Spirit that they preach back in kids' church. Did you know that? There's not a junior version of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that? It's not like God light. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And that was not specifically for adults of a certain age. It is for anyone who follows Jesus. Maybe it's time for us to start letting our kids pray at times and not just over the meal. Like, hey, um, and this takes some vulnerability. Hey, da Daddy had a hard day. Would you mind praying for me? And let them understand that there is power in their prayer. There's, there is authority in them touching the heart of God. And I think our kids can be strong. I think our kids can kill giants if we empower them, if we show them how, if we lead them well and let them fight some battles. Hey, right now I'm going to turn it over to our host in Blairsville. They're going to close out the rest of this message. They're going to give you an opportunity to respond. And I hope you guys know. I love you more than you know. I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. So this weekend, it's easy if you're a parent to, um, to think, wow, I, I blew it. Um, my kids are grown, or maybe your kids are teenagers and they're hellions, and you're just thinking, I'm, I'm horrible because I missed it. And I want you to hear this. Um, there were many giants. There were many giants in Scripture. There were only five that were killed specifically that we know of. Um, All the men that were David's mighty men saw what Abishai saw and Sebekai saw and 
Hananan saw, or Elenin saw, and Jonathan saw. They, they experienced the same things, but they have free will. So they made a different decision. There were more giants to kill, but not everybody killed a giant. That wasn't David's fault. He did everything he needed to do. He raised up some giant killers. But the reality is some people make other decisions. And if you're a parent and you're struggling because you feel like, I messed up, man. Like my kids have gone off the rails. I want you to know something. All you can do is the best you can do. And your kids are going to make decisions at times that you disagree with. Your, your kids are not going to be perfect. But what you do is you say, I'm going to show them what it means to love Jesus. I'm going to lead them really well. I'm going to let them fight some battles. But they've got free will to make choice for Christ or to walk away from him. They get to decide. Our responsibility is to do what we have the power to do. So I want you to know there's no condemnation in this place. This isn't about raising perfect kids. It's about putting kids in contexts where they can learn what it means to be used by God. You know, one of the things I love is that Caleb, after they had wandered the wilderness for 40 years, he was an older man by the time he finally got to go into the promised land. And when it was time for him to go in the promised land, he made a request of Joshua. And he said, can I have the hill country as the inheritance for my family, for our tribe? We want the hill country. And this is powerful because he knew what the hill country held. He knew that there were giants in the hill country. But he said, that's for us. And he was old enough then, he might not have been as skilled a fighter as he once was. But he was saying, I want my kids to experience this. I want my grandkids to experience this. I want us to be a church of people that we will say, bring on the fight. Where's the giant? Let's go. But it starts with us as individuals. It starts with our kids. It starts with our family. It really starts with our relationship with Jesus. So if you're here, maybe you recognize, I don't really have a relationship with Jesus. He is the one who fights the battles. He is the one who slays giants. He just happens to use people like us. So I want to give you that opportunity. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes all over this place. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us beyond what we can understand. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that, that your desire is to use us in ways that we can't imagine. I pray that we would not be satisfied with anything less than that. God, I pray that you administer in this place. I pray for those that don't know you. Let today be the day they surrender it all to you, that they recognize your kingship and lordship in their life. Lord, I pray for those that are maybe struggling to, to raise their kids well. Maybe they're struggling with what to do or how to do it. Maybe they're struggling with just a rebellious heart or spirit in their kids. I just pray you'd minister in those parents right now. I pray for those that, that are speaking into people as spiritual moms and dads. Lord, I pray that you minister in them. I pray for grandparents who are struggling because their kids maybe aren't raising their grandkids in a godly way. Lord, give them wisdom. God, direct us today. Have your way with us. Lord, minister in this place. Change us. Use us to kill giants, God. God, give us the spirit of Caleb that, that says, send us to the hill country. Send me to fight the giants. Help us to have that heart. Now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. If you'd say to me, Mel, I'm not really serving God. I'm not in relationship with Jesus, but I know I, I need to be. I want to be. I want to experience the victory that you were talking about. And I know that I can't do that without Christ. So I, I want to pray with you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you come forward. I just want to pray with you where you are. I'm going to uh, pray a prayer that all of us are going to pray together. And if you want to be included in that prayer, would you slip your hand up real high and say, Mel, that's me. I want to surrender my life to Christ today. You can slip your hand up and put it right back down. If you say, Mel, pray for me. Yeah, thank you on my right. Yep, I see your hand on my far right. Thank you. Yeah, I see you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, buddy. Who else would say, Mel, pray for me. Include me in that prayer. Thank you. I see you in the back on my left. Praise God. 
Okay? I want to pray this prayer with you. The Word of God tells us in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I want you to pray this prayer with your mouth, but I want you to mean it from your heart. I don't want you to repeat a prayer mindlessly like a robot. I want you to pray this from your heart. So pray this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving Jesus your only son to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I repent of my sin and I thank you that you love me enough to send Jesus. Use me to kill giants for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a round of applause. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture says you're a new creation. We would love to help you take the next step, to go to the next level in your faith. The simplest thing for you to do would be to take the card out of the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out, drop it at our info center. It's at the center part of our lobby over here. Or if you'd prefer, if you're watching online or here in the room and you'd rather, you can simply text Summit PA to the number 94000. When you do that, we'll respond back to you. And if you'll select the prompt that says salvation, uh, we're going to get some information in the mail to you and help you take the next step in your faith journey. Uh, I'm going to pray a final prayer blessing over you as we're dismissed today. And while I'm doing that, some of our prayer team, some of our staff are going to join me here at the front of this room. And I would encourage you, if you'd like to be prayed with, no matter what your need may be, as we're being dismissed, simply make your way forward and let one of our team pray with you before you go. So let me pray a blessing over you as our team joins me. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done in this place. Thank you for people who have said yes to you. Thank you for people who have recommitted their lives to you. Lord, I thank you for parents that, that today they've made a decision to uh, redouble their efforts, to, to, to model what it means to be a follower of Christ to their kids, to lead their kids well, to, to let their kids fight battles. Lord, let today be the day that there's a shift in families in our church. And God, I pray that we would raise up giant killers. Lord, let us walk out of here boldly, confidently knowing who we are in you, that we are sons and daughters. So Lord, I pray your blessing on us so that we can be a blessing to the community in which we go. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Guys, I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have an awesome week.